would uh, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13, be, verse, be reading verses 1 through 17. When you get there, say Jesus. All righty. So now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is, not, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. We are glad that you are here today. And man, it was really cool to see that highlight video of Westside men and Westside women. Can we give it up one more time for just the men and women of Westside? It was an incredible season that we had. And so we take a pause and then we'll launch into community groups and you'll hear more about that and how you can get involved. But really all of that is just the vision of who we are as a church. Um, You see these words everywhere, gospel, community, and mission. And that's one of the ways that we want to live life together. Hey, just a quick announcement before we get going. Uh, We have taken a break from our Acts sermon series. So we're just sort of plugging along through the book of Acts, verse by verse, line by line. We've got a stand message today, and then next Sunday, we start Advent, which is really crazy to think about. And so if you've never celebrated Advent, didn't grow up in church, don't know what that means, Advent is actually the time in Christian history that we prepare for Jesus' birthday in Christmas. And so it's a series and a of anticipation, of looking back to see the promise that God made, looking around to see what God is doing, and then looking ahead to Christ's second coming. And so next Sunday, this place is going to look like Advent, and it's going to be an incredible time. One of the things that we always love for you to do is for you to also be preparing your heart and mind or your home for the season of Advent. And ways that we do that is out there at the welcome lobby, you will see that we've got some Advent devotionals for you. The big, uh, the big red book is one for sort of the entire family if you've got small children, and then the smaller book is one for your personal devotion. And what that does is that gives you something to prepare, to read, and to build anticipation up to December 25th when we celebrate Jesus' birthday. And so both of those are just five bucks out there in the lobby. We've got a link quantity on those. And so you can pick those up and uh, enjoy your Advent season. So enough of those announcements. Today, um, if you saw sort of by the title, um, the title of the sermon is How to Have a Meal with People You Don't Like. And it's sort of clickbaity. I do have to admit that. But the reason behind that is, is obviously we have Thanksgiving um, quick approaching. And I've been in the game long enough. I know that the holiday season is one that's supposed to be filled with joy and happiness and anticipation and getting to see people that you haven't seen in a long time. But I also know this, that being a part um, and being a lead pastor for a number of years, that this time of the year also causes 
a lot of heartache, whether that be um, an empty chair around the Thanksgiving table that was occupied last year, that won't be occupied this year. But bar none, without a doubt, that if I was to have a cup of coffee with you, um, statistically, I would hear from you maybe a little bit of anger and a little bit of anxiety about possibly a family conflict that sometimes comes to a head when we're gathered around a table together. And I looked up a few Thanksgiving statistics through Barna. Um, 44% of people will spend about $500 or less on the meal this year. Um, 50% of people will travel by car to another destination. And the busiest time of year in an airport is actually the day after Thanksgiving. So if you're planning on doing that, don't, okay? Right? That's supposed to be the busiest time. But this was the statistic that stuck out. 64% of people anticipate some sort of conflict or argument possibly around the Thanksgiving table. Now, listen. If, if that's not you, praise be to God. You're like, man, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be awesome. We all look at you with a little bit of envy, okay, right? But the reality is, is for some of us that there is conflict that does take place. And so what I thought as just sort of a stand-alone message is, I always want to be helpful. And one of the things that I always want to show you as your pastor is that the Bible is timeless. That God actually wrote a book. And because it's timeless, it's always timely. And everything and anything that's going on in your life can be found of some sort of application from the Scriptures. And so I always want to be answering questions that you have and are going on in your life and answer it from the scriptures. And so today, according to those statistics, and and maybe it's even higher than that, actually um, the three areas of conflict that the study said were um, politics, if that gets brought up, um, COVID, if that gets brought up, and then money. Those are sort of the three because Aunt Bill borrowed money from Aunt Jean and he ain't paid that back in 20 years. You know what I'm saying? And so those are sort of the three high levels. And um, I think today, when you heard the text read to you, you can already draw a little bit of implications from it. Because today in John chapter 13, the text is actually around a meal. And it's by far one of the most famous meals that have ever taken place in history, and it's called the Last Supper. And and maybe you didn't grow up in church, you don't know a lot about the Bible, we're so glad that you're here today. We want to be helpful to you. Um, Actually, in John's Gospel, 80% of the words that are written down in John's Gospel center around the Last Seven days of Jesus' life. It's, it's really a big deal. In the last seven days of Jesus' life, he does a lot of stuff um, like die on a cross for the sins of the entire world and universe, okay? So it was a kind of a busy week, right? But we see him share um, the last supper or the last meal, which, which would have been sort of Jewish tradition for him. So I think, though, the problem is is that anytime I say something like that, like, hey, the Last Supper, immediately you go, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I know about that. Um, I remember that. I remember being in the Hallmark store and sort of seeing this painting, which is by far the most famous painting of Supper, of how to handle the hostility is the topic today. But this is the painting, and it's Leonardo da Vinci's recording of the Last Supper. And, and when we look at this painting, and, and maybe I'm just a South, Southeastern boy, but I'm like, that's supposed to be one of the greatest paintings in the world. But anyway, okay. maybe I'm not a cultured man, okay, right? But when we look at this, it's sort of polished, it's sort of put together, it's sort of nice and neat, and you think, oh, there's Jesus, and he's pointing at the elements, and Judas is here holding the money bag, and then there's the disciples, and then why did they all sit on one side of the table, right? Um, and who took the photo? And all of that type of stuff like that. Then maybe they did the selfie timer at the Last Supper. And we think it's sort of polished, and, and what inevitably happens is 
We look at something like this and then look at our life and we assume, oh, the Bible can't speak to my issues um, because my family's Thanksgiving doesn't look like this. It actually probably looks like this, um, the scene with Ricky Bobby there. And so if you don't know what that is, you can ask Pastor Tyler. He'll be out there in the lobby. Um, No, I'm just teasing, right? But listen. We think that it's all nice and neat and put together, but our lives are so dirty and messy that there is a disconnect there. But one of the things I want to do today is I want to be a little bit different in the sermon. One of the things we teach that's so important when we study a passage of Scripture is the context. Um, So I'm going to spend a lot of time um, building the framework as to what's actually happening. So Jesus is sitting down at a table. Um, This is literally in less than 24 hours. Jesus is going to be beaten almost to death have a spear thrust into his side, piercing his heart sack. His wrists are nailed with railroad ties. His feet are crossed together, nailed with railroad ties. And he's going to die due to asphyxiation. And he will have to pull himself up on the cross in order to even catch a breath. All of that's happening in less than 24 hours. And these are the last moments that he's going to get to spend with his disciples. So everything that he says is like on the edge of the seat. What's he going to say? What does all of this mean? But in another gospel, Luke's gospel, he gives us a bunch of clues as to what is happening before we sit down at the table. Um, in Luke 22, verse four, uh, 24, it says this, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Listen to this. On the way to have the meal, a dispute, and that's a really strong word in the original language, an argument, a conflict, rose among them. I love this verse and I'm so glad that it's in the Bible. Because oftentimes we think of the disciples as sort of these stained glass saints totally removed from real life. But they're arguing as who's the good as they go and have a meal. Literally they're saying, no, 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 no. I think I'm at his right hand in heaven, bro, because I cast out that demon that time, and Jesus looked at me and was like, you know what, Peter? Good job, right? And then James and John are like, "Uh uh-uh, man. I was with him when he fed the 5,000 with the kids' Lunchable, and I passed out. They are literally arguing as to who's better, as to who's better, okay? So the way an argument arises before they sit down at the table. So there's already some hostility that's taking place. But the next thing is this, Luke 22, verses 1 through 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Here it is. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So... Jesus' boys aren't only arguing amongst themselves and passive-aggressive statements are being made. Um, Can you pass the salt and then you hand them the pepper or something like that? But also, while he's on his way to the meal, he has to go, um, oh yeah, people are trying to murder me. So literally every corner, maybe every loud noise or everybody that comes through the door, it's kind of like, is this it? getting ready to happen. So that's probably cranking a little bit of intensity and anxiety in the room as well. But on top of all of that, on top of all of that, which by the way, would be enough for us to send the text to go, can't make it to Thanksgiving this year. Sorry, right? Sorry, can't make it. Um, Remember that time when Jesus was going to choose his inner 12 disciples? These guys were going to be his best friends. These guys were going to be the ones that spent every day with him, that got um, the inside information, if you will. The Bible says that Jesus fasted and prayed all night in order to choose the 12. 
and one of them is Judas. And in Luke uh, 22, verses 3 through 6, it says this, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priest and the officials, here it is, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and saw an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. There's an argument already happening. People are already upset at the table. Jesus, at any moment, is going to be wrongly arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to die. There's a bounty out on his head. And then one of his closest friends whom he loves is going to betray him for pennies on the dollar. I mean, have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been hurt? Like, like, I don't know anything that's personally more painful than something like a betrayal. That when you have entrusted yourself to someone in a relationship, you begin to question anything and everything. So listen, um, there's an argument already happening. Jesus is getting ready to get murdered in less than 24 hours. There's a bounty on his head. One of his best friends has already made a deal to betray him. Michael Corleone type stuff. And um, dinner's ready. We're all ready now. Um, The turkey's out. We're ready to sit down and, and have a meal together, right? This is the context of the Last Supper. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord might have something for you and I. Um... Because newsflash, all families are broken. Okay? Don't say too loud of an amen if you're here with your extended family, okay? Because we are all sinners in close proximity to one another. But the longer and longer I walk with people and I live with people, my heart breaks for the unforgiveness, the betrayal, the conflict. All of those things that are happening. Maybe it's by far not to this degree, but when you sit down this week at the table, there might be a level of hostility there. So how would we normally handle something like this? How would we normally handle this type of hostility? And your personality plays a big factor into this. Maybe um, some of us would just fight it. Maybe some of us are like, ho, ho, I cannot wait till Uncle Bill walks through that door at Thanksgiving, buddy, because I've got something to say. I've been seeing them Facebook posts, okay? You might as well tag me in them, right? And we are ready for that conflict. Um, Secondly, maybe it's not fighting it, but maybe it's faking it. Maybe it's we never talk the rest of the year, we never send texts, we never have phone calls, any of that stuff, but it's like the, how are you? Fine, how are you doing, right? So glad to see you, or something along those lines. And that's a grievous place to be in, because then when you get in your car and drive off, there's a level of sadness that's there. Or maybe some of us not fight it or fake it, maybe we just flee from it. And so maybe now we've said, you know, I'm just not going to do Thanksgiving at mom, dad's, or at grandma's. And I haven't, and it's sad, but because this, and because they always, and what does Jesus do? That's what I'm interested in. How does Jesus handle this? Because this is some serious hostility. This is some serious maybe relational anxiety. What happens? What takes place? By far, um, all theologians and scholars agree that apart from the crucifixion itself, John chapter 13 and the actions of Jesus are some of the most shocking in all of the Gospels. You see, you got to understand something culturally. 
So back then, they didn't have um, Yeezys and Nike Air Jordans and nice fancy shoes and all of that stuff. They wore sandals. They had open-toed shoes. They walked in dusty streets. And whenever they would come into a home in order to share a meal, they didn't sit at a normal table like you and I sit. They would be on the ground, and they would also lean up against each other and eat at a table like that. It was always the job of a slave to wash the people's feet after they had entered the home. So it would be the equivalent of you telling your kids to wash your hands before you eat the meal. But Jewish literature tells us that it was such demeaning task that an ethnic Jew wasn't even responsible for doing that. It needed to be a Gentile or somebody outside of the family to do a menial task like that. And we see the second member of the Trinity, very from God and very light from light, the same God that spoke the Milky Way into existence, put a towel around his waist, grab a basin, and wash the disciples' stinky feet. It is by far one of the greatest acts, there's a word here, there's a word here, humility that has ever been done. That's what Jesus does. Amidst all of the hostility, amidst all of the context in the background, in order, I mean, I mean, he could have sat those guys down, slammed that door and said, you know what, I'm sick of it, fire's coming from heaven now, buddy. I mean, he could let, he could do all, you know, you're blind for a long time. And Peter, you can't talk anymore. I mean, he could have done all of that. He could have just left. He could have done a number of things. But Jesus Christ presses in and washes their feet. And so the word that I feel that God has just placed on my heart and mind to give to us as we are getting ready to sit around a table that possibly has hostility and relational anxiety at it, and the question is ticking and weighing on your heart and mind every day as it approaches, how do I handle this? The big idea in the thesis today is this. Humility heals hostility. The answer is humility. Is there a conflict in your marriage? Is there a conflict in the relationship? Is there a conflict? Is there anything relatable? Do you feel like there's something that you're at a pass that you cannot get behind? The Bible's answer and prescription to you and I is always humble yourself. Um, a couple things about this. The word humility is used over 175 times in the scriptures. Be humble, humble, humility, meekness, all of those types of things. When it comes to all of the Christian virtues that are taught in the New Testament, the number one Christian virtue is love, and then the second Christian virtue that's taught by far is humility. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what makes my job so tough today. That, that as you were like, okay, man, what's the answer here? Wow, that's the context. Right, we're here, and I dropped humility. It's like putting turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> you were like, that's the answer? It's like going to the doctor and being like, doc, I'm just not feeling good. My back and my knees and all of that. And the doctor runs all the tests and he goes, you know, um, what I'm prescribing for you is um, a new diet and workout. And you're like, oh, that's the answer, right? It's not what we want to hear. And the reason why is because I think we have a gross misunderstanding as to what humility is. Did you know that when the Bible talks about humility and the actual word that's used in the original language was a negative attribute in the context and the days that the scriptures were written. So when the Apostle Paul or Jesus says um, the meek 
shall inherit the earth. That word meek or humility in that day and age was not a characteristic people ascribed to. It was something that was almost seen as negative, that you did not want that as a personality trait. But here comes the gospel, and it dumps the world's values on its head, and it says the way up is actually down. Because, listen, I get like 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday to combat the lies that we are told 24, 7, 365 every day of the week. And so you're told, you shouldn't let them, you need to show them who's boss, and this is just the way I am, and my mama taught me this, and I'm just, and then the head gets to moving, and all, and the hostility is cranked up, Right? And it's because I think we don't even understand what humility is. Um, I thought this would be fun. Uh, yesterday, I asked my three kids w- without any background or any anything. I just went to them and I said, um, what do you think humility is? Or what do you think when I say be humble, what do you think that you should do? Or what do you think that means? And so um, here they are, three answers. This is good stuff. This is deep. This is real deep theological stuff here. Roman, who's getting ready to be 10 years old, says, um, Humility is being embarrassed or being strong in your heart, I think, is what he said. Okay? Um, Piper said, Humility is being scared and thinking that you're in trouble, but... um, uh, also, trusting people, I think, maybe, I don't know. And, and then when I said, what does it mean to humble yourself? She shook like a dog on the floor. So, I don't know what that is, all right? Um, Andy Grace, Andy Grace said, humility means you're homeless. I love it. It's great. That's good. Um, We laugh at that, but I think also we are far removed from the meaning of humility. Um, First off, humility is not hating yourself. Nope, that's not it. Humility is not being a doormat and letting people walk over you and hurt you. For some reason, there's this lie prep into the church that says being a Christian means, quote-unquote, just being nice. And now, now, listen, I'm all for being nice. But did you know that Jesus actually told his disciples to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves? Jesus said that. Um, actually, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as your self. Listen, self-hatred is not a Christian virtue. And I'm afraid that many of us in this room live in that prison of self-hatred and guilt and shame. And you carry other people's anxiety and you carry other people's hostility. And you go around all the time and find yourself saying, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, um, gosh, I'm sorry. Somebody spills their coffee and you go, I'm sorry, right? I mean, it's just all the time, right? Because you're trapped in that. It's not hating yourself. The second thing is this. Humility is not hiding yourself. Um, it's not passivity. So humility is not Mr. Well, you know, I just... I don't try to get in in any arguments, and that's what you believe, and that's what you believe. And, you know, it's like avoiding Mr. Passive all the time. No decisions are made, no effort, no action, no intentionality. And you're hiding under the guise of saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm humble. No. It's not hurting yourself, or it's not hating yourself, hiding yourself, and the last is this it's not hurting yourself. It's not hurting yourself. It is not putting yourselves consistently in harm's way in relationships where you will be hurt constantly. We say this all the time at Westside. You can love Jesus and call the cops on that person, right? Listen, that is not 
what humility is. So what is humility? What is it? Um, I like this definition. Humility is being honest about who I am in light of who God is. That's humility. You see, in order for us to understand humility, there has to be a standard. And the problem nowadays in society, and you can ask any social scientist this, in the 50s and 60s, um, in psychology, there was this tidal wave of, oh no, these children are underperforming. What do we need to do? We need to raise their self-esteem. So everybody gets a trophy. Everybody wins. And we need to tell them constantly how perfect and how great they are. And you ask any social now, test scores are as low as they have ever been, and evaluation is as high as it's ever been, which now leads into a plethora of other problems, of entitlement, um, authoritarian issues, and all of those things. But for us to have a standard always has to be God. Why? Um, because in the beginning, God. <laughs> because that's the standard. And for some of us, when you hear this, you think, oh yeah, God is great and holy, and I am awful, and I am sinful, and I am broken, so that's what humility is. No, no, no. You see, you're still teetering on that line. Um, I love this quote from Pastor Timothy Keller, and he says it all the time. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's the perfect balance. When you read that, the proper response to that is humility. It is to get low. It is to go, I am so broken. I'm so broken, blinded of brokenness. But at the same time, I must have faith to believe that I am more loved than what I could ever imagine. That's why we say all the time, whenever you go to the mountains or you stand at the Gulf of Mexico or you look at the Grand Canyon or you're in that hospital room and you hold that newborn baby, everybody in those moments feels small. You feel insignificant. Nobody looks at the sun setting at the Gulf of Mexico and says, you know what? I'm awesome. <laughs> and I don't care what anybody else says. No, in those moments you go, wow, there is something out there bigger than me. Humility is being honest. Honest about brokenness but also honest about the beauty that God shows us in Jesus Christ. So listen, I just want to look at two quick points from this passage that maybe, just maybe, if you lean in and you understand and swallow, sort of like a tough pill to swallow, that humility is the answer to hostility. Maybe, just maybe, what can heal the hostility around the table this Thanksgiving is you. Please listen to me. It's not the other person. If you're listening to this going, you know what? I'm good and ready. I am good and ready to humble myself as soon as I see them do it. As soon as they come to the line, I'll meet them right there. Listen, that is anti-gospel. That is literally anti-Christ. Why? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God always makes the first move. Always makes the first move. So there were two words that came to my mind. The first one is this. Perspective, perspective. The same God that orchestrated the stars and planets in the solar system is the same God that orchestrated the very people to sit around your Thanksgiving table. 
Please understand this. Where does that come from in the passage? We'll look at verses 1 through 3. John uses this phrase twice. It's very interesting. Verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, here it is, when Jesus knew, underline that in your Bible, Jesus knew, he knew something. What did he know? That his hour had come. Listen, that is a huge phrase in John's gospel. If you read through John's gospel, you will see constantly when Jesus heals somebody, he tells them, don't say anything because my hour has not yet come. Maybe you've read the Bible and you've been like, why does Jesus heal somebody and then tell them not to tell anybody? Because he knew the domino effect of what would happen when crowds and everything would take place and he had some things to accomplish. And so now, John says this is it this is the moment the hour is the cross that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father I love this phrase having loved his own who were in the world comma here it is he loved them to the end he loved them to the end verse 2 during supper When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here it is, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Whoa. Whoa. Verse 3 is huge. John says Jesus fully knew. Jesus had the right perspective that God had granted him all authority. That everything that's going to happen now, Jesus, you can sign off on. You know what's going to happen. This is the plan that has happened before the foundations of the world. And right before that verse... It says that Satan entered Judas to betray him. Jesus isn't shocked at what's happening around the table. But here's what he does. He rests in the sovereignty of his father. And he says, the same God that created the Milky Way and the cosmos is the same God that saw it fit to have these people around table at this very moment and time in history. So, what's the application? What if, please listen, what if for just a moment, just a moment, you stepped back this Thanksgiving and instead of fighting against and living in the anxiety of the relational conflict, and why are they coming, or why aren't they coming, or why this, or why that, You accept and submit to who God has placed right in front of you. Please listen to me. It is no accident. It is not by happenstance that the people that will be around your table will be there. And what if... What if instead of viewing this as an obstacle in your life, what if this is the very opportunity that you have been praying for? Many of us in this room have been praying for those relationships and have been praying for that individual that they would either come to know Christ or that God would heal the hostility in that situation. And now in God's sovereignty, He has placed them under the same roof as you around that table for an hour or so. What if instead of viewing it as an obstacle, this is an opportunity for God to answer some prayers in your life? It's the perspective. It's the perspective. The second thing that I see is this. Posture. Perspective and posture. Um, You can't control your circumstances. But you can control how you respond to your circumstances. You can't control other people. That's a good spot for an amen. I'm going to say that again, okay, right? You can't control other people. But you can control your attitude towards other people. Look at what happens. John is comparing and contrasting. 
Judas is now betraying Jesus. Satan has entered. Verse 3 is a massive theological statement. That Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. And now here it is, verse 4. John's raising the crescendo. Imagine that this is music or this is a movie and everything's driving to that point. The violins, everything's taking place. And then here it is, verse 4. And he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Look at all of these words, these action words that John is using. Rose from supper, laid aside, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water, began to wash, wiped them, wrapped around, did all of those things. But listen, look, look up here. He's not saying a word. Jesus isn't saying anything. Oh, but he's saying everything. Did you know um, that 98% of all communication is nonverbal? 98% of all communication is nonverbal. So please listen. When you aren't saying anything, you are almost saying everything. So when you approach this holiday season... What if, just for a moment, by God's grace, you were self-aware of what you were saying without saying anything? Or here's the sentence. In any situation, your approach often affects the outcome. What Jesus is showing us is that there is a posture that comes with humility. It is not arms crossed. It is not a scowl face. It is not a shut down posture. It is not sunken shoulders. What it is, is it is close and it is low. Jesus had the right perspective. And Jesus had the right posture. And I know what a lot of us are doing. Um, you're doing the thing. I do it too. You're arguing with me and it's okay. It's okay, Right? Um, what we're doing is we're replaying in our mind how unique our situation is, right? So, well, well, Pastor, I understand humility and humble yourself under the mighty God. And like, I get all of that. But, but what you don't understand is, is that she said this to me and then never said. And what he did was the theft that happened and the betrayal. Pastor, see, my situation is so unique that what I need is I need a lot more, I need a lot more detail um, than that. And actually, you see, that's Peter's problem. Did you see that scene that takes place that when Jesus is going around washing everybody's feet? And oh, by the way, um, did he wash everybody's feet? Yeah. I wonder why John mentions Judas so much in the passage. And crammed right in the middle of that is that he washed his disciples' feet. And then when it comes to Peter, Peter does this thing. Um, uh, here it is, verse 8. I love this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, right? Because Peter thinks like that he's humble. I'm humble. I'm humble. Jesus, you can never wash my feet, man. I need to wash your feet, man. You can't. And then Jesus is like, Peter, um, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. And then Peter's like, wash my whole body, right? Give me a belt, wash my head, wash everything, right? Peter is just bad. He has no idea what's going on. Um, but Jesus' answer, like, I want this to be my life verse. Look at it. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, what I am doing, not understand now but afterward you'll understand right it's like 
life verse, right? That's every day of walking with Jesus. Jesus, what in the world? I can't, no way. And then, oh yeah, and I'm just back and forth, back and forth. And, and the problem is, is, is this. We want to understand now. So before I sit down, because my marriage, and I'm going to sit down and talk with these people, I want to know what the outcome is. I want to know what this is and what's going to take place, how much I'm going to have to what she's going to do, what he's going to have to do with all of this. I need to know now, and then I'm fine to sit down and talk, okay? I just need every bit of the information up front. But listen, the question is not, do I understand everything that Jesus is trying to do in this situation? The question is, will I stand under what Jesus has commanded me to do? In this situation? That's the question. I knew when writing this message that I would not resolve the conflict, but I would leave it with you. But I leave it with you with the idea of understanding the truth of God's word says that when we humble ourselves, humility. Humility heals the hostility. And then, listen, here it is right here. Jesus says it. It's the last, verse 17. Actually, jump up to verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Here it is, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you have them memorized. Is that not what your translation says? Oh. Um, If you know these things, blessed are you who do the 25 days of thankfulness on Facebook and every day you post what you're thankful for. doesn't say that. How does the blessing come? Blessed are you who know these things and do them. Do them. I will never forget being a young boy at Emerson Street and my Sunday school teacher teaching us this little rhyme. God's grace is always found in the lowest place. God's grace is always found in the lowest place. So as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, um, you got today, hopefully, um, a Band-Aid. And so somebody was going around passing those out, and you were like, what in the world, right? Um, if you didn't get one, there's some out there in the Welcome Center that you can get on your way out. And here's what I wanted. I didn't want this to just be some one-off message in between series and this, that, and the other. Listen, I really wanted to equip us today. So here's the idea of this lesson. What if, what if, on the day of Thanksgiving, before you go into that house, You keep this Band-Aid in your pocket. You put it somewhere. Some of y'all might even need to put it right on your forehead, right? And they're like, what's going on? You're like, nothing, nothing, right? My pastor told me to do this so I wouldn't hate you today or something like that, right? Okay. Um, What if this Band-Aid was just a quick physical reminder for you of healing, of healing? Gosh, Westside, I don't know about you, but I see so much hostility Everywhere I turn, it's almost overwhelming on the news, on social media, with families, in marriages, with parents, with kids. There is so much hostility and heartache everywhere. What if we were agents of healing? What if this Thanksgiving, by God's sovereignty, He's placed those very people at your table and even the very people that have hurt you? And what would it look like if we brought healing and absorbed that hostility? Because what's the motivation? What's the motivation for you? once dead in your trespasses and sins and hostile to God in your mind by grace you have been saved 
through faith that this is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God that no man may boast. You see, God made the first move toward you. And it is our responsibility to make the move towards others. Hold on to this and heal the hostility this holiday season through humility. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today grateful for your word. God, grateful even when it's difficult and it's tough. God, I feel like today when Peter turned to you, Jesus, and said, this saying is hard. This is tough. And God, we come before you today and we admit that, we confess that, we say this is difficult. But God, could we just be honest with ourselves and say, we've tried everything else. We've tried to fight it, and how's that turned out? We've tried to flee from it, and how's that turned out? We've tried to fake it, and how's that turned out? We don't have any more energy for fake smiles anymore. And the answer that you give us, though it is not one that we want to hear, it is one that we need, and it is the truth, and the truth will set us free. And God, I pray that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that we would see the beauty of the gospel, and that we would say, who am I to have this grudge, to have this unforgiveness when Jesus died in my place for my sins, and I claim that grace, yet I do not give? that grace God may a simple miracle be found in just a little band-aid and I pray God right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that this Thanksgiving and this holiday season would be one that would break generational chains forever God I believe it in this room that you will do it that generations have suffered heartache from the hostility but you through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit will break those generational chains right when somebody humbles themselves and gets low because your grace is found in the lowest place we love you and we pray this all in Christ's name Amen